Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for another series of The Fanatical Futurist. My name's Freddie Claude, and today we're looking at the future of computing. From biological computers, which teach the body to naturally self-medicate, to the future of wet artificial intelligence and liquid computer chips. And also, we find out the results of what happens when you speed up the genetic evolution of mice by millions of years, plus much, much more. But firstly, I'm joined once again by Matthew Griffin, The Fanatical Futurist. Matthew. What have you been up to? It seems you've been incredibly busy of late. Well, yeah, absolutely. So I suppose basically a better question is what haven't I actually been doing? In fact, actually, I think I've been doing so much that I've forgotten probably 99% of what I've been doing. Well, that's worrying. So, uh, yeah, I think was it since, it was since we sort of last chatted, I've been in about 30, 35 different countries on four continents with a whole variety of different organizations. But in it's, uh, yeah, frankly, as we start seeing traveling coming back, yeah, it's getting mad. Well, obviously, Matthew, you covered a lot of ground in many different spectres, different mediums in the first series of this podcast, looking at the future of different things. But today we're concentrating on the future of computing. Yeah, absolutely. So when we actually have a look at the future of computing, uh, there's this huge debate over the death of Moore's law. Yeah. You know, if you have a look at some of the if you have a look at some of the latest fabs, you know, some of the latest chips that are coming out of the fabs. You know, we're now kind of at five nanometer and seven nanometer. You know, if you actually have a look at developments from the likes of IBM and as well as China, yeah, we have three millimeter transistors that are now increasingly on the drawing board, moving closer and closer to to manufacture. Um, but, you know, when we start talking about the slowdown in Moore's law, everybody points to the fact that it used to be the case that the performance of computers used to double every 18 months. You know, that sort of famous 1963 Gordon Moore's law that Intel then kind of, you know, managed to uh, make its own. But when we actually have a look at cost performance, cost performance, basically, of the performance and the cost of individual computer chips, basically, was also halving, you know. So if we were sitting here today, I'd say, well, next year I can pick up, you know, say next year I can pick up a computer that will be double the power and kind of half the price you know, from a processor perspective, you know, even though Apple keeps putting its prices up and, you know, doing all that. That's a fun one. That's a fun conversation with Apple. Have fun. Um, but, you know, on the one hand, you know, we've seen a huge variety of different kinds of transistors now coming through. So, for example, you know, in the labs, where we've already got transistors that are two nanometers, one nanometer, 0.5 nanometers you know, in size, but also 0.1 in size. But, at the University of Surrey, they developed a transistor that has literally zero size. So it's a right. quantum transistor, you know. So when we have a look at the weirdness of quantum mechanics, for example, you know, this is sort of where we inevitably talk about waves, you know, and all these kinds of things, quantum waves, a little bit like radio waves, but at a slightly sort of more quantum level. So when we actually have a look at the future size of transistors, we already have transistors that are zero nanometers in size. When we then start having a look at computing itself, yeah, computing itself is kind of going through this revolution because, again, you know, when we talk about the death of Moore's law, a lot of people are saying there's only so much silicon that you can actually pack onto a computer chip, you know, from a transistor size perspective. So, you know, this is where we look at things like, you know, 3D computer chips or 3D stacked computer chips, basically where, you know, you now have essentially wafers over wafers over wafers. It's like putting more computer chips and more IO and connects and everything else into the same computer chip and then just stacking stacking them up like a mini tower, a mini skyscraper. But, 
you know, when we actually start looking beyond silicon, you know, we've got this huge pipeline of really weird computers coming through. You know, the vast majority of listeners will know probably plenty about quantum computers. You know, when we have a look at quantum computers, yeah, you know, quantum computers are already proving themselves to be tens of billions of times faster at particular calculations than even the world's biggest supercomputers, you know, like the Summit supercomputer basically at the Department of Energy. You know, and bearing in mind that even traditional supercomputers have now recently broken the exaflop uh, barrier. You know, you're typically talking about supercomputers, you know, silicon based supercomputers that can do 219 trillion, 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 trillion calculations per second. You know, so when we start talking about the step up from traditional supercomputers that the likes of HP and, you know, Cray and so on and so forth actually sell today to quantum computers. We've already seen quantum computers do calculations that would have taken up to about three and a half billion years on something like Summit in a couple of seconds. Which which businesses are adopting quantum computing? Because obviously it has the potential to completely change the world. Which which businesses are actually sort of the early leaders behind those? So I mean, so there's actually a couple. So from a manufacturing perspective, you've got organisations like Microsoft. And now Microsoft are working with Delft University, and they're really doubling down on trying to create accurate quantum computers using a technology, well, using molecules, but a technology called fermions. You've got Google. So Google have their own quantum computers. Typically, they use their Sycamore quantum computer chips. You've got Intel that are creating their own quantum computer chips as well, and those are getting bigger and bigger. IBM, Alibaba. Um, you've got organizations like D-Wave. Now, so the organizations like D-Wave, a lot of people say, well, is it really a quantum computer or is it, you know, a wannabe quantum computer in quantum computers clothing? You know, and it's because they work differently. But also going to sort of throw this one on the table. You know, when we talk about the use of quantum computers today, we have organizations like BMW that are already using quantum computers to optimize their massive global supply chains. So in BMW's case, the average car has 30,000 components. And so trying to just manage the supply chain for one car's worth of components gives BMW a headache, but increasingly they are now adopting sort of what we kind of call quantum supply chains. We've got Volkswagen that have been using quantum computers to optimize traffic flow. So quantum computers are really good at what we call optimization problems, mm-hmm. like the traveling salesman sort of issues. But you know, when we actually have a look at some of the other uh, things that are coming through, we've already seen quantum computers being used by the likes of Cambridge University to essentially try to cr- model n- proteins, but also create new synthetic proteins. So when we have a look at healthcare, you know, there are a lot of there's a huge amount of opportunity for quantum computers to radically change how we develop and then test you know, all, all kinds of different you know, healthcare treatments, you know, whether it's things like vaccines and so on and so forth, or whether it's things that are more complex, you know, like biologics and so on and so forth. It's estimated that by 2025, when we get a quantum computer that has a thousand qubits, these quantum computers will take minutes to crack 256-bit AES encryption. They'll also be able to crack 70% of all the world's encryption. 
But it's also been estimated that if you want to crack 4096-bit encryption, you know, which is your top secret, top secret, top secret stuff that even the people who talk about top secret don't know about, uh, we should be able to crack 4096-bit encryption in between 8 to 12 hours. Wow. Um, wow. You know, when we also have a look at things like quantum, when we talk, if we talk about hacking you know, and sort of quantum networks, for example, which are sort of related, we've also recently seen the Chinese manage to clone the seed of the lasers, which were used to create some of the quantum information that's been transferred across networks. So when people talk about quantum technologies being unhackable, we've already actually seen how in some cases the Chinese especially have managed to kick that myth to the curb. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, when you have a look at quantum computers, we've got criminals uh, that have been creating what we call nuclear mag magnetic resonance quantum computers in their garages. Now, these only have sort of between one to four qubits worth of power. Mm. But yeah, when we sort of think about the the power that these computers have, and we get fairly comfortable that that power is going to be concentrated, say, with the com with companies like IBM or Google or whoever it happens to be. Yeah, we also have to remember that serious organized crime always finds a way. And if, if you can dangle the ability to crack every single Bitcoin wallet out there in a matter of seconds or minutes using brute force, you know, from a quantum computer, you know, you've got serious organized crime groups who in who just themselves basically are now and bring in revenues of an estimated six trillion dollars, according to a lot of the sort of different tax men and women around the world. You know, it's really going to be a question of when serious organized crime groups manage to get their hands on quantum computer products, whether they've made them themselves or whether they manage to just, you know, hijack, you know, an IBM, you know, they're like the IBM Q cloud service. Um, and that's going to cause a huge amount of headache, basically, for all kinds of organizations around the world. So we've got good companies, basically like BMW and VW using them. Uh, but then we also have criminals who are already eyeing quantum computing as a brilliant opportunity to crack everything that's encrypted and steal your crypto. Well, that's some good news, isn't it? To keep it sort of keep on rolling and not make us paranoid about the future of our lives. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Exactly. no longer are we not say physically, also digitally, we're getting completely destroyed without even realizing. Yeah, but actually, on that front, you know, so uh, the US, uh, the US Standards Agency, NIST, has actually come up with a list of quantum of quantum proof encryption systems. Uh, now they ended up shortlisting four, and this is a sort of fun story. So they ended up saying, right, we've got four kinds of encryption, futuristic -y kind of encryption, things like lattice and everything else encryption. And they said, you know, quantum computers will not be able to crack these kinds of encryption um, setups. Um, Except for the fact that within the space of a couple of days, someone had used a basic laptop to crack one of them. <laughs> and then really? NIST was like, oh, that, okay, maybe we're not going to be using that one. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so when we actually have a look at things like, you know, post-quantum crypto, uh, when we have a look at quantum-resistant encryption and everything else, uh, there is good work being done. But frankly, you know, it, it looks a little bit comedy out. And bearing in mind that, yeah, bearing in mind the volume of information that we have in the world that's encrypted, we probably need something a little bit stronger than something that can be cracked by my laptop that has been sitting in a drawer for 10 years. 
Well, that's, you know, quantum computing. Where do we go to next? Um, because that was yeah. uplifting, but also quite depressing. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, so I mean, look at all of it. You know, as I always say, basically, there's lots of threats in the future, but it's also an opportunity for someone to create a completely new kind of encryption algorithm. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So off you go, guys. Uh, now, where we sort of go next is if we're kind of taking a slightly linear approach to things, we've got neuromorphic computing. Okay. Uh, so neuromorphic computers are based on sort of a, a kind of technology that increasingly people call artificial synapses. Now, what what neuromorphic computers do is essentially they are built on a computer chip architecture that is based on the human brain. So what we end up with is we kind of end up with an artificial human brain on a computer chip, which is generally still a silicon computer chip in this case. Neuromorphic computers uh, up in the University of Manchester, they've managed to roll out a million core neuromorphic computer, which was a little while ago, admittedly, uh, which has the, has the power and can also simulate an entire mouse's brain. Right. Now, I know a lot of people are sort of be going, so what? Um, you know, but, uh, you know, because, I mean, mice, they, they can be clever, uh, especially when cheese is involved. But, you know, aside from that, you know, you're not going to find a uh, mouse being given a Nobel Prize anytime soon. <laughs> um, but actually, when you sort of step back and have a look at Ray Kurzweil's you know, law of exponential technologies, you know, you'll sort of see that we go from, you know, an insect brain to a mouse brain and then to a human brain on a computer chip and then to, yeah, everybody's everybody's brain on a computer chip um which actually while we're talking about that increasingly while we talk about brains on computer chips we're also increasingly seeing chips in human brains which is a slightly different conversation that takes us into the world of brain machine interfaces but that's another that's another podcast but uh, when we have a look at when we have a look at neuromorphic computers the, the kind of appeal of a neuromorphic computer is that they are self-learning so it's a completely different form of artificial intelligence to the AIs that we're kind of used to today. Um, but secondly, they can pack more power than again, the US Department of Energy's Summit supercomputer into a package the size of your fingernail that can then be powered by nothing more than a AA battery. Right. Now that kind of stuff is sort of relatively interesting because essentially what a lot of the neuromorphic computing researchers have been trying to do is literally recreate the human brain in a computer. And when you think about the human brain, our brains have got a huge amount of processing power and capability, but it's the brain's about a liter in size. And frankly, you can feed it chips. Um, you know, it's my brain is not connected basically to a nuclear power station, which ironically, some of the supercomputers around the planet are directly tied into nuclear power stations because they're sucking that amount of energy. And if you have a look at some of the supercomputers down in Essex, down in Exeter, um, in the UK with the UK Met Office, I think they suck down more more energy than something like thirty thousand homes. You know that kind of stuff. Yeah. So a neuromorphic computer is not just fundamentally different from an artificial intelligence perspective or processing perspective but it's fundamentally different basically from an energy and consumption perspective as well. Um, so that's neuromorphics. Now, where we start going after that, and we've actually built this, this is where we, we completely eliminate Moore's law and we start supercharging computing. So 
And there's a variety of different places I can start, but I'll, I'll start here. So increasingly, the US military are trying to use polymers to create something called molecular information systems. Now, these MIS systems, which are being developed by organizations like DARPA, as well as IARPA, which is the bleeding edge intelligence uh, sort of research arm of the US military. Essentially, the US military want to create polymer-based computers that have more power again than modern day supercomputers that can pack a Google sized hyperscale data center into something the size of your office table, complete basically with storage, network components, you know, memory, processing power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And actually they're making some decent headway. Um, now, when we start moving beyond molecular information systems, and we've got a lot of these new computing platforms being developed in parallel, we've got DNA and biological-based computers already here. So if we have a look at biological computers, we've already managed to turn DNA into essentially logic gates, which is how most modern computers kind of work, you know, on, off, et cetera, et cetera. So, We've managed to we've managed to create the sixth generation E. coli biological computer that we've been able to store YouTube videos in because why not? And then replay YouTube videos from. So this is where we kind of use organisms as computing devices, bearing in mind that there are people out there that say humans are just really, really fancy types of computers. Now, when we start talking about the use of humans as biological computers, we've managed to turn human liver cells using gene editing technologies like CRISPR, which is a, a very powerful technology in itself, into dual core computers. So everyone can look this up, you know, Google it or Bing it, you know, I mean, do Bing, does Bing still exist? But, you know, go and Google it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. what we have is we've already turned human cells mammalian cells into dual core computers. In addition to that, we've also managed to uh, run two parallel genomes within human cells. So for example, you know, you've got your human genome and we've also managed to create artificial genomes and we've been able to run them in parallel in the same human cells. Now, when we start talking about uh, human humans as supercomputing devices. Uh, again, the US military have got a program called Living Pharmacies. And we've already seen these being rolled out by organizations like GSK for Parkinson's, but I'll explain what I mean by Living Pharmacy. So this takes us into the future of healthcare, which we kind of discussed a little while ago. When you turn a human into a computing device, we suddenly have the ability for those DNA-based computers to identify different pathogens and biomarkers within our blood, for example. So if we have a DNA computer within our bodies that can identify that you have the flu and then analyze it, we then tag team that technology with biomanufacturing within living cells and we now have cells that can create the antidotes or create the drug treatments or the vaccines basically in your own body. Now, when we actually have a look at, for example, I think it's GSK, uh, GSK have actually managed to uh, alter gut bacteria. So 
for a Parkinson's application. So these gut bacteria actually manufacture Parkinson's drugs in vivo in the human body. So when we move from biological computing to sort of, should we say, biological slash DNA based computing, but within human construct, all of a sudden we literally become disease fighting supercomputers. So your body becomes self-medicating. You, you become yeah. a doctor in your own right through yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, and, but this is where... You know, while a lot of people talk about individual technologies, this is where you really have to talk about the convergence of technologies, because when you converge biological computing tech with biomanufacturing tech with genetic engineering and all these other bits and bobs, as well as synthetic DNA, which I'm going to come on to because it takes us to the next kind of computer, um, suddenly science fiction basically not only becomes science fact, but frankly, sci-fi looks damn boring, you know. Um, I can, yeah, in fact, I was going to actually get a mug made up because I've been doing quite a lot of sort of video work and everything else that just says we killed sci-fi, you know, <laughs> and this, that's kind of like a prime example of just one way that we've killed sci-fi and moved beyond sci-fi. Oh, when we actually have a look at DNA based computers, firstly, you know, we've all got four base pair DNA in common, basically with the dinosaurs and the amoeba that crawled out of the primordial soup, you know, billions of years ago on prime primordial earth. But we've now created six, eight, and 11 base pair DNA organisms. So, for example, we have now created organisms that have 11 base pair DNA. Um, in addition to that, we've created DNA based storage. Now, with companies like Microsoft and Twist Bioscience, yeah, as well as others, you know, companies like or universities like MIT have been doing this as well. We were able to demonstrate a little while ago that we could store 213 petabytes of data in one gram's worth of DNA. But with synthetic DNA, we've now managed to demonstrate that we can store half an exabyte's worth of data in one gram of DNA, which right. means that you can pack all of the world's information, everything on the internet, everything on every single computer and device that we have, into something the size of a shoebox. So this is where, when we start talking about leaping forward, exponential technologies, killing sci-fi, we are already on, well on that path. What we can now do is we can now use DNA to create DNA-based computers. But DNA-based computers, which have already been used to calculate square roots, because you've got to prove that they can do stuff, it's has been estimated by the University of Manchester that a DNA-based computer about the, half the size of a test tube would have more computing power than every single computing platform on the entire planet. So forget mimicking a supercomputer. We are leaving them in the primordial dust. However, DNA computers get even weirder when you start realizing that at one minute you could just have one DNA strand doing one calculation. But if I suddenly threw a trillion calculations at that DNA strand, provided it's got the right environment, it can just replicate itself up. And then when it's finished that calculation, it can just replicate it. It can just collapse itself back down. So this kind of takes us, and I'm going to mention this simply because we haven't done it yet. This kind of takes us into another weird area of DNA where people have recently created a 264 node neural network. So that's an 
artificial intelligence out of DNA. So now you see these confluences coming together. What happens basically when you have a DNA computer coupled with DNA-based artificial intelligence capabilities, which is something we call wet DNA, wet artificial intelligence, which I could actually throw a wet artificial intelligence into your cup of water. Could I start turning the world's oceans into a giant supercomputer? And I've got another computing platform that actually does that even better. You know, we get into some random conversations. Not like this is a random conversation, obviously. <laughs> but then, you know, as we start moving beyond DNA supercomputer DNA computers, we have liquid computers. So we have already had people, and these are really, these are obviously bleed beyond the bleeding edge. They're still in the labs. You know, we haven't got a whole one as a proof of concept yet. But we've already got researchers who've developed liquid computer chips. Now, when I say liquid computer chips, I'm literally talking, it's a liquid. You know, I'm not using some fancy language. How do you make that then? Uh, so this is where, so you can use a variety of different ones. So this is where liquid computing and kind of chemical computing can sort of come together. So for example, when we look at chemical computers, chemical computers use redox reactions, reduction and oxidization reactions. Uh, you can also use uh, bases and acids to create logic-based gates. When we have a look at future computing platforms, really what we're trying to do is we're trying to create these, the logic gates that we typically see in modern day or current day uh, silicon transistors, but just in a different way. So when we have a look at chemical computers, we've already got a proof of concept for chemical computers that has managed to send text messages. But we've also got liquid storage. So we've been able to demonstrate that we can store information in liquid form. I can send you an email basically that exists in the quantum realm. Mm. So when we have a look at the Canadians, for example, the Canadians a little while ago, University of Toronto, actually teleported an email. So this is where we kind of get into the weirdness of, you know, well, okay, if you've got a computer, how do we store information? You know, how do we process information? How do we integrate these new things with existing legacy computer platforms and so on and so forth. Um, and then, you know, as we start sort of uh, looking a little bit beyond that, basically we've got things like wave computers, basically which are frankly weird. Um, they come out of companies like, or they come out of organizations like MIT. So a wave computer is a kind of computer that uses Xeno waves and essentially processes vast quantities of information, but doesn't use any energy. As we move from sort of silicon uh, platforms, as we move to neuromorphic platform, so silicon to quantum to neuromorphic platforms to biological and DNA platforms, uh, and then sort of chemical and liquid platforms and polymer-based computers, you know, we can still see further beyond that. And then, you know, when we have a look at the West Coast of the US, you know, from a size perspective, they've already developed uh, essentially the blueprint for computers that are the size of viruses. You know, so when we start looking at smart dust, you know, which is kind of these really small sensor slash compute devices that are no bigger than the, a grain of dust, which then leads us on to things like programmable material, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we already have some really interesting things going on in that area, but obviously it's generally in the lab. None of it is commercialized. You know, this is all sort of early stage stuff. And it's interesting to see that quite a lot of the 
quite a lot of the things that we're actually seeing happening in the future computing world is now starting to be mirrored in the future electronics world. So we're now starting to see biological electronics, let alone electronics that self-configure, um, that dissipate and dissolve on demand, you know, all kinds of weird things. So when we actually have a look at electronics and how that ties into future computers, yeah, we are now starting to see electronics and computing merge. And again, if you think about what computing and electronics have made possible for human society in the past hundred years, you could actually argue that we are fundamentally revolutionizing the absolute building blocks that will help us form new kinds of civilizations, new products, new services and everything else. It seems that like no matter what their individual raison d'etre or niches of these new computers, they're all to a certain degree chasing efficiency based on essentially the human body or brain and, and the fact that they're all locking after space, speed, size, who can compress the most, who can store the most, who can be the quickest. Yeah. Well, this is it. And it's, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we, when you have a look at sort of bio, when you have a look at natural evolution, you know, we sort of diverged, you know, we had human evolution, and then we kind of had technology evolution. When we actually have a look at the rate of new technological development, that's it. it's, we always know that you can develop a robot many, many times faster than you can evolve a human. And in fact, actually, I can't believe it, I actually left one major type of new computer out. So I'm going to cover this one quickly, and then we'll get on to biological evolution and how we increase that by millions of fold. So I can't believe I've actually missed this one out. So I'm calling this meta computing. No one has a name for this yet. I'm calling it meta computing. Um, so what we've now got is if, if your kids play, for example, Minecraft or Roblox or Fortnite, um, what we've now seen is we've now seen people who've developed virtual computers within Minecraft. And these virtual computers actually run virtual Minecraft that can then run a virtual computer that can then run virtual anything, you know, virtual programs, artificial intelligences, and so on and so forth. So when we talk about exponential technologies, you know, we typically talk about, say, Moore's law, you know, we think, when we talk about the rate of exponential change, we think, well, we will have more transistors on computers next year than this year, yeah. exponential tech. But when you take exponential technologies digital, when you can create meta computers in a virtual reality environment, and these computers then become self-improving, self-optimizing, and then spawn other computers, that's a really weird construct. But we've also seen recently, and I actually read about this last time, artificial intelligences that have been able to create computers within themselves that can then run programs, but also other artificial intelligences. So when we start talking about the future of computing, you can almost see this divergence. Basically, we've kind of got, you know, physical technologies, whether it's DNA, whether it's, you know, chemicals and chemistry, or whether it's neuromorphic stuff or quantum computers or silicon, but we're also starting to see the, the exponential rate of change at a point where when you have a computer within a virtual world that has been made by an artificial intelligence, and that artificial intelligence can make a computer within itself, self-optimize it, improve it, 
auto scale it to global scale, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You end up with this really weird world where yeah, what happens when an artificial intelligence manages to create or emulate or, well, I say so create, emulate or create a virtual computer within itself that can scale to global scale and process huge volumes of information. Um, you know, that's a that's just sort of a weird concept, you know, so this is this is where technology increasingly just becomes mind blowing and mind bending. So when we start talking about chromosome level engineering in China, they managed to use that technology on mice and they managed to speed up the genetic evolution of mice, mammals. Uh, mil by millions of years. So when we think that we as humans kind of are locked into this Darwinian evolution, you know, next yeah, the next generation of humans might have a slightly bigger nose than the generations before, et cetera, et cetera. In the labs, again, we already have the technologies to accelerate the rate of human evolution as well as biological evolution by millions of years. And do we know, do we know what the mice started doing after they were um, sort of sped up millions of years? So, so apparently they healed really fast. Right, okay. <laughs> actually, so, I wasn't going to say that. But actually, so, yeah, they healed really fast, which actually then leads me to think, you know, do we, in the future, do we have wolverine mice? <laughs> um, you know, that's it, where, you know, you're trying to, so, you know, you, you can see the rat catchers and the, the rodent catchers basically sort of trying to kill them and everything else, basically, and all of a sudden, you know, these mice are coming back to life like wolverine, basically, from the X-Men. Oh, that's nice. it, like, what's this? <laughs> uh, yeah, then we're all overrun by super mice. And of all the future computers you mentioned uh, in this episode, which one are you most excited by and which one are you most terrified by? Uh, yeah, so they're one and the same. So I'm most excited by sort of biological computers. Yeah, so biolog biological more than DNA. Um, but you kind of can use that interchangeably. Because, for example, you know, as humans, I mean, you know, when we have a look at the COVID pandemic, I mean, we've had tens of millions of people die basically because of COVID, you know, whether you believe it or not. If you don't believe it's COVID, you can call it a different name, but either way, they've died of something. Of course. Um, so now imagine basically the ability to combine... DNA or biological based computing with people to create living pharmacies, where if you come into contact with the world's deadliest pathogen like Ebola or what we're calling X out of Africa. So people who hunt Ebola are now hunt hunting X, where X is believe they believe this sort of super Ebola sort of actually exists basically in deepest, darkest Africa. Um, when you have a look at the ability for humans to the human body when it comes into contact with a completely unknown unknown deadly pathogen or something that just isn't right you know like a cancerous cell within the body and say i think this is a cancerous mutation because it's showing this genetic marker and therefore i'm going to i'm going to use biomanufacturing to create you know, a treatment for that, and then it kills it. I mean, you end up kind of arguing that from a human standpoint, do we start talking about immortality? We certainly can start talking about living longer. But if you have a technology that helps the human body cure itself, heal itself, but also repair itself, 
you know, you get a cut, you know, literally like some of these Superman movies, you know, these, yeah. these uh, superhero movies. That's exciting. But that's also completely freaky because these same biological slash DNA computers. Firstly, you know, I mean, one of my customers, NCC Group, so a little shout out to them. Um, they're already trying to figure out how biological computers can be hacked. You know, so they've actually been running a couple of programs basically there, which those have been fun to be involved with over the past couple of years. So, you know, that's where we are uh, with some of the, the thinking behind these things. But, um, you know, when you actually think about the the opportunity to use biological based computing to bio manufacture new bio weapons and nasty stuff, that's also very bad. And as the United Nations sort of said about what, four years ago now, they said the world's most powerful weapon isn't nuclear weapons any longer, even though there's a particular person that's doing a bit of saber rattling. Yeah. The United Nations flagged bioweapons as the most as the most dangerous future weapon. Well, you, you know, you say huge opportunities there, and obviously you've touched on just the incredible power these computers are already having, albeit yeah. in the future, the short term and long term. On that, were you then slightly disappointed by the role that computing in general technology played in fighting COVID? So, so kind of yes and no. A little while ago, I was invited by the United Nations Development Program and the United and the UAE government, as well as Expo 2020. Um, and this is on my YouTube channel, but it's actually all in uh, Arabic. Um, so um, if you if you speak Arab, yeah, if you speak, yeah, you can't Arabic, speak Arabic, you're rather stuck. Yeah, then you can figure out how we can detect the next pandemic, but also, you know, I say kill it, cure it, you know, defeat it, whatever phrase you want to use. Um, so from a futurist perspective, I was a little bit um, upset that we didn't see more emerging technologies actually really supercharged, basically, to try to create the latest vaccines and all that kind of stuff. Bearing in mind that we've got platforms like like Google's deep Google DeepMind's artificial intelligence called DeepFold, which can simulate any protein on Earth now. Um, and bearing in mind that, you know, if you want to create a vaccine, you need to understand what the protein spike, for example, of COVID is. And if you can simulate that protein spike, then you can create vaccines and drugs and everything else faster. But, you know, while I was sort of disappointed to see some of the, the bleeding edge things that I'm seeing in the labs actually not being pushed a little bit more to the fore, the fact still remains, basically, that, you know, if you step back, you know, a couple of years ago, to create a new vaccine would typically take about five to 10 years. It took about three months to create the COVID vaccine because we did actually use artificial intelligence and quantum computers and supercomputers. And so technology demonstrated quite vibrantly during the pandemic at, that it can actually accelerate drug development, but also drug testing. Um, so there was that. Um, but the thing that really slowed down the, the rollout of a lot of the vaccines for COVID wasn't necessarily the speed at which we could actually put new vaccines together and develop them, which is a whole story really in itself. There's a lot more to unpack in that bit. Um, it was actually the testing, you know, so we went, right, we've got a COVID vaccine, we think it works, you know, now we've got to test it on 3000 to 15,000 people. And we've got to wait kind of six months to see how many of those people, you know, get, you know, become unwell, react to it, die, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it happens to be. And then once we sort of have demonstrated that these vaccines are clinically safe, you know, within a given ratio and percentage and all that kind of stuff, then we will roll them out to the population. 
Um, so what we've been seeing in the healthcare space sort of during COVID, COVID that started accelerating things like the digital humans program, where I have a vaccine, but I don't test it on a human subject. I test it on a digital clone of that human subject. And if that digital human reacts to the vaccine, then, you know, we go back to the drawing board. So while COVID, while we did use a lot of emerging technologies to battle COVID, even down to things like 3D printing ventilator parts in Italy and all that kind of stuff, we can go much further and we already are. Matthew, that was absolutely fascinating. So much to unpack, digest and enjoy there. Obviously, we'll be speaking again soon. But before we go, we'd love to know what you're up to over the next you know, week, two weeks or so. Um, I've got a variety of different sessions coming up basically with the likes of Coca-Cola. Um, so that's sort of fun. That's on things like the future of occasions. Um, sessions basically with Disney and Universal on the future of theme parks. Basically, So, you know, some Very of these cool. videos will emerge soon. So uh, this is where you know we we look at how we use not really technology but technology and human ingenuity uh, to frankly just create new fun experiences and everything else. So I think that's sort of one of my favourite keynotes, basically that I'm going to be giving, and that's going to be at a uh, breakfast at uh, in London at the Expo. Awesome. Um, but in addition to that, you know, we've got quite a lot of sessions coming up basically with the Society of Pension Professionals. So this is where we talk about the future of. Yeah, the, the impact that technology will have on uh, pensions, you know, as well as work. Um, sessions with Visa, as I sort of mentioned, basically, so we've got more sessions with Visa coming up, basically, on things like future of uh, future of financial services, money, basically, and uh, and something else. Um, I was going to say Web three, but it's not Web three. Future of uh, financial services, you know, money and uh, business and bits and bobs. So uh, that's coming up. So yeah, I mean, there's 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 always lots to do. There's always lots to discuss. Basically, when we start talking about the future, if anything, the future is never dull. That's it. But it certainly can be confusing, complex, basically, and difficult to get your head around. Yeah, the future, like your diary, is never dull and incredibly <laughs> yeah. diverse. Matthew, you've been absolutely incredible, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Well, likewise. That's it. Thank you very much, and take it easy, folks. Ta-da.